Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe. Key battles. The Battle of Muret, 1213, part two of three. By the winter of 1208 to 1209, preparations were well underway for a crusader army to invade Languedoc in southern France. The intention was to destroy their heresy called Catharism. The leaders of the region were well aware of this fact and the threat this represented to their positions. Unfortunately for them, they could not agree on how to respond. The Count of Toulouse, Raymond VI, tried to persuade his young nephew, the Count of Béziers and Carcassonne, Raymond Roger Trencaval, that they should work together. But Raymond Roger would not listen. The two leaders were unable to come to an agreement and overcome the rivalry that had existed between their families, the Saint-Gilles and the Trencaval, for well over a century. The rulers of southern France could probably not foresee the scale of the disaster about to unfold in their beloved homeland. After all, there was no precedent for a crusader army attacking a Christian region, even when plagued by heresy. Perhaps they hoped for intervention from one of the great powers, maybe the King of England or of Aragon, or even the Emperor in Germany. For sure they had no desire for war, were totally unprepared to deal with the incoming Crusader army, and right up to the last moment still hoped to avoid bloodshed. Count Roger the Sixth of Toulouse seemed to have understood better than anyone what open conflict with the Church would mean, and so he resolved to submit to the Pope, Innocent III, so that his realm would come under papal protection and out of bounds to the Crusaders. His nephew instead chose to defy the Pope and resist demands to arrest the Cathars. As a consequence, in July 1209, he found himself confronted with a large Crusader army, within its ranks many nobles and bishops. As soon as he saw the scale of the army, he had a change of heart and rushed to Montpellier to plead with the papal legates. He admitted there it was true that during his minority, his regent, the Count of Foire, was well known to have sympathies with the heretics, and also that the Bishop of Carcassonne had been expelled from the city for daring to preach against heresy. Raymond Roger requested his youthfulness be taken into consideration claiming he could hardly be held responsible for what happened during his minority. But by then it was too late. The legate Arnold Almerich had already made up his mind. All Raymond Roger could do was wait for the inevitable conflict. He promised the citizens of Béziers that he would send reinforcements, then rode to his capital city, Carcassonne, to help personally organise the defences there. A few known heretics and all the resident Jews of Béziers accompanied the Viscount and abandoned the town, fearful of the fate that would await them if they should fall into the hands of the approaching Crusader army. 
When the siege of Bezier began, the city's bishops met with the crusaders and entered into negotiations. The demands of the crusaders for not attacking the town was the handing over of all known heretics. The list of names of the 222 wanted individuals still survives today. The consuls of Béziers, although Catholics, indignantly rejected such a bargain and declared that they would rather die than betray their fellow citizens. Their response was not only a display of loyalty to their Viscount, Roger Raymond, but revealed the strength of feeling about protecting their way of life from the outsiders. The citizens of Béziers would have probably felt reasonably confident of being able to hold out against the enemy for a period, at least until reinforcements from their Viscount arrived. The town was set in a good, defensible position, high above a valley, and several weeks' provisions had been gathered in preparation. The chronicler William of Tudela also indicates the townspeople were given hope by believing the large crusader army would find it difficult to feed themselves for a long period, or that the enemy leaders, who had their own personal rivalries, would be unable to stay united. And if they could resist for as long as forty days, many crusaders would simply return home, having completed the period of time required to cash in their indulgences. However, on the very first day of battle, an ill-advised reconnaissance sortie from the town garrison gave the crusaders the opportunity they needed. Having been pushed back, the garrison, on trying to re-enter the town, were overwhelmed, which allowed a number of the crusader army to force their way in and begin to sack the town. The panicked citizens tried to flee for their lives, and many rushed to the churches where they prayed for protection but the attackers showed no mercy. All inside were slaughtered, women and babies, invalids and priests. In 1840, when the church of the Madeleine was being restored, a huge quantity of human bones were found under the floor, the victims of this massacre. Arnold and Marek were said to have asked how heretics could be identified, to which the legate is famously supposed to have replied, quote, kill them all, God will look after his own. End quote. Although this quotation is most likely a later invention, it does sum up the indiscriminate and ruthless savagery of the sack of Bizier. Once the town was looted and emptied of anything valuable, it was set alight and consumed by fire. Massacres of this kind were not uncommonly employed in medieval times as part of a policy of terror and intimidation. The attackers here made it clear what fate would await anyone else who dared resist God's warriors. Indeed, the chronicler William of Tudela specifically wrote, quote, The nobles of France, nobles and laity, Princes and marquesses were agreed among themselves that whenever a chateau they invested refused surrender and had to be taken by force, the inhabitants would be put to the sword and slain, thinking that afterwards no man would dare to stand out against them by reason of the fear that would go abroad when it was seen what they had already done. End quote. In the short term, such a tactic worked well. Several other towns, such as Narbonne, 
immediately let it be known that they would not offer any resistance. In the longer term, however, such brutality lost the Crusaders any opportunity of winning over the hearts and minds of the population of Languedoc. Such a crime would not be forgotten nor forgiven. Only a few days later, the Crusaders reached their next target, Carcassonne. This was a stronger fortress than Bezier. The city today still looks much as it did then. Built above the valley of the River Ord, it was ringed with massive fortifications from which rose no less than thirty watchtowers. The city was not short of provisions, but in the heat of summer water was in short supply, compelling Raymond Roger to parley with the Crusaders. His overlord, King Peter II of Aragon, also arrived and agreed to mediate on his behalf, but was unable to reach a deal and withdrew. King Peter no doubt would have liked to have helped his vassal, but was in a difficult position, wary of the dangers of publicly siding with a prince who was the subject of a crusade. What happened next is not entirely clear. The sources who are all favourable to the crusade suggest that Raymond Roger voluntarily surrendered himself as a hostage. Most historians believe it much more likely that the unfortunate young man was arrested by the crusaders during negotiations. Either way, deprived of their commander, the city capitulated on the agreement that the citizens would be allowed to leave the city unharmed. According to William of Tudela, Stroke, they went out in great haste, half-naked, wearing shirt and breeches only, with no other clothes. The crusaders left them no other possessions. End quote. Unlike in Bezier, where the mercenaries had helped themselves, the leading nobles of the crusaders ensured that the robbery of Carcassonne would be more peaceful and organised, and so acquired for themselves the vast bulk of the booty. The Crusaders had now achieved two important victories in quick succession. The campaign had so far gone more successfully than anyone could have imagined. Raymond Roger, meanwhile, was denied the privileges that such high-ranking nobles would have expected to enjoy in this period. He was flung into a dungeon cell, where he died three months later, a victim of the appalling conditions of his captivity. Up to this point, leadership of the crusade rested with the papal legates, and particularly with Arnold Almeric. But with the taking of Carcassonne, it was agreed to appoint a secular ruler. When the Duke of Burgundy and Count of Nevers both declined the post, it was decided to elect Simon de Montfort. As described earlier, Simon was an experienced soldier. In the siege of Carcassonne, he once more displayed his characteristic bravery and leadership skills, and would continue to do so during the crusade. He was soon able to capture several towns to the west and south of Carcassonne, such as Castra, Lombert and Alibi. An assault on the castle of Cabaret was unsuccessful, but he next went on to campaign successfully in the lands of the Count of Foire. This region, in the foothills of the Pyrenees, bordering Aragon, was where the concentration of Cathars was probably the greatest. At this point, a large number of crusaders, now that their 40 days' service had expired, 
felt that they had earned their indulgences and returned home to northern France. Simon de Montfort was granted the Viscounty of Bézières Carcassonne by the local papal legates. He was accompanied by a small group of close followers and about 500 soldiers who agreed to stay in return for double wages. Over the winter, several local lords who had been forced to do homage to the new Viscount took advantage of the fact that Simon no longer had the manpower to assert his authority and decided to throw off their allegiance. They also tried again to bring in King Peter of Aragon into the conflict with a general offer of homage. Peter declined to get very heavily involved, although he did agree to help protect his vassal, the Count of Foire, and his holdings in the Pyrenees. As the spring of 1211 arrived, a large new army of crusaders returned from the north, and so, with his army reassembled, Simon was once more able to go on the offensive and regain the initiative. He was soon able to capture the entire region of Carcassonne, except for the fortified towns of Terem, Minerve and Cabaret. Minerve was the first of these three to fall, after its citizens' access to water supply was destroyed. Surrender terms were dictated by Arnold Almerich, who declared that the lives of the garrison and townspeople would be spared in return for handing over the town's perfects. The Cathar leaders were given the choice to convert to Catholicism, but all 140 of them refused, and so were burned alive as heretics. This was one of the first of the mass executions that would later become a common feature throughout the Languedoc. Term and Cabaret held out for longer, but both towns had been taken by the end of spring, allowing Simon to turn his attention to the town of Laval, which lay only 20 miles from Toulouse. The defenders, led by Amory of Montreal and his sister, Geralda, held out for over two months, but were overwhelmed when the town walls were breached. Simon acted mercilessly towards those who rebelled after previously submitting to him, albeit under threat of violence. He ordered the execution of Amory and the eighty knights who assisted him. Geralda, a noblewoman, well respected for her many acts of charity, was thrown down a well. She was stoned alive, screaming and weeping, until she was buried. Even by medieval standards, her murder was barbaric. In Toulouse, meanwhile, the papal legates excommunicated the consuls and laid the city under interdict for their refusal to give up the perfects and their followers. Count Raymond of Toulouse spent his time in feverish diplomatic activity. He tried but failed to gain assistance from either Emperor Otto IV or King Philip II of France, but he was able to come to an agreement with the Church. In return for more actively promoting Catholicism in his realm, he succeeded in releasing his capital from the interdict. This agreement, however, turned out not to be long-lasting. The papal legates continued to apply pressure on Raymond to cooperate more actively with the fight against heresy. In January 1211, according to William of Tudela, a council was held at Arles, at which the count was delivered the following ultimatum. He was to get rid of his mercenaries, to stop giving protection to Jews and heretics, and to surrender them all within a year. What's more, Raymond was given the following personal terms. 
that he and his barons were not to wear costly garments but coarse brown homespun, were to raise their chateaux and fortresses to the ground, and to no longer live in towns but only in country districts. And on top of this he was required to set sail to the Holy Land, and stay there as long as the legates decreed. The terms were so ridiculously harsh, Raymond simply could not accept. On the 6th of February, he was once more excommunicated and his domain declared forfeit. The way was now open for Simon and his crusaders to begin an attack on Raymond's heartland, Toulouse and the surrounding area. After early successes in several towns, by the middle of June 1211, the crusaders had reached the city walls of Toulouse. They were too few in number to surround the city completely, which had the advantage of lying beside a very wide river. Despite the best efforts of the papal legates to stoke divisions among the citizens, the town's consuls strongly resisted and were able to command the loyalty, or at least acquiescence, of most of the town's citizens. Simon gave up the siege and withdrew after twelve days to redirect his efforts elsewhere. He sent an army south to devastate the county of Foire, while he personally moved northwest to secure the towns of Cahors and Quercy. Count Raymond of Toulouse, however, strongly resisted and assembled a coalition of seven forces who were able to push back against the Crusader armies. As in the previous year, most of the Crusaders headed back to northern France as soon as the campaigning season was over, leaving Simon's forces once more severely stretched over the winter. Simon's difficulties were compounded by the fact that he could not rely on support from his new subjects, since those who had done him homage out of fear again began to desert him for Raymond as soon as they felt safe enough to do so. The subsequent revolt marks the point at which the southerners finally started to come together behind Count Raymond VI against the Crusaders. The chronicler Peter of Roi de Cernay represents the partisan supporters of the Crusaders when he angrily accuses the southerners of treachery for going back on their word. He makes no mention of the fact that their pledges of allegiance were forced, nor recognises the extent to which the invading Crusaders were resented. When the campaigning season began again in spring the next year, 1212, Simon de Montfort was able to make good use of the returning crusaders. He not only recaptured the towns and castles lost during the winter, but swept southwards throughout the region, including through the Cathar stronghold to the counties of Foire and Comage. By the autumn, only two settlements still held out, Montauban and Toulouse. Raymond now decided to appeal personally for support to King Peter of Aragon. Peter had just achieved a great military victory against the Moors of Spain at the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa in June of the same year. This gave him immense prestige and favour among the Pope and the Catholic Church, which he hoped to use to his advantage in France. King Peter saw that his interests there were coming under increasing threat, his vassals along the Languedoc coast were being overwhelmed, his possession of Montpellier was being surrounded, and closer to home his vassals, the Count of Foire and Comage, had been attacked by Simon de Montfort. There was also a family connection to consider, since Count Raymond was married to King Peter's sister. 
King Peter hoped to be able to employ his considerable prestige in bringing a peaceful resolution to the region, and maybe even to redirect the energies of the Albigensian crusaders against the Muslims of Spain. During the winter of 1212 to 1213, Pope Innocent was persuaded enough by this argument to call a halt to the crusade in France, and so wrote to Simon de Montfort to behave properly as the vassal of the King of Aragon. In separate letters, he also accused Simon and Arnold Amaric of acting indiscriminately in attacking lands of the Count of Toulouse, which were not tainted by heresy. However, similar to the Fourth Crusade, Innocent found it much easier to start a crusade than to control one. The character of the conflict had clearly changed from its original objective of removing heresy and turned into a brazen land grab by Simon and his fellow northern warrior knights. According to Michael Coston, the Pope's problem was that he was far away from everyday events in Languedoc. His knowledge came through letters and messengers, long after the events reported. This had the disadvantage that he could not be involved in immediate decision-making, for which he had to rely on his legates. The people he had put in charge, especially Arnold Anmerich, were fervently anti-heretic, Virtually any action seemed to be justified as long as it destroyed the plague of heresy. In February 1213, King Peter of Aragon met with his vassals from Languedoc and persuaded them to reaffirm their allegiance to him. One interpretation of these events is that he was attempting to unify under his monarchy the people of Languedoc, together with those of Aragon, to create effectively a new political entity. If so, and if he had succeeded, his lands would extend in a great uninterrupted arc along the coast of the Mediterranean, from Tarragona and Barcelona in the west, along to Montpellier and Marseille in the east. If King Peter had achieved this, and such a state become stabilised, then he could well have changed the course of European history. The papal legates became alarmed that their divine mission was in danger, and that their years of sermons, intrigues, persecutions and wars would come to nothing. So they hurried to Pope Innocent and convinced him that the King of Aragon was interfering in the vital work against the Cathars. The Pope listened too and was sympathetic towards both sides of the argument. Both Peter's appeal to the importance of upholding the rules of feudalism and also the legates appeal to avoid anything that threatened the spiritual supremacy of the Church in Rome. He was in a conundrum, and for a while deliberated on what next to do. In May, Innocent declared his decision, in which he returned to his previous hard line against the Cathars. He sent a message to Peter, warning him in no uncertain terms not to support heretics, and admonishing him for his actions. Quote, Would God that your wisdom and piety had grown in proportion to your renown? You have acted ill both towards us and yourself. Effectively, what this meant is that Simon and the Crusader army once more had a free hand to continue their attacks as they liked. King Peter, offended by the words of the Pope, who had always served so faithfully, took no notice. Instead, he continued his preparations for a military campaign in support of his beleaguered French allies. In Barcelona he raised an army of a thousand knights, his finest warriors who had brought him victory the year before in Las Navas de Tolosa. Combined with his troops from elsewhere in his realm and with those of the southern French, 
His army numbered about 4,000 cavalry, between 30,000 and 40,000 infantry. Simon and the Crusaders were alarmed at the size of the Spanish army heading their way and tried to negotiate, but King Peter refused, confident of victory. First Peter's and Raymond's combined forces entered the city of Toulouse, where they received an enthusiastic reception. They then marched on to the fortified settlement of Muret, 20 kilometres to the south, which was to be the location of a fateful battle against Simon de Montfort and the Crusaders. My name is Carl Rylott, and you've been listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. You can find out more about the podcast by going to its Facebook site or my blog at www.historyeurope.net. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can join me next week for the concluding part of the Battle of Muret, 1213. Until then, have a great week. 